A superbly performed descent into a nightmarish chapter in the history of American capitalism. Anupama Chopra, a film companion. That's right, folks. It's Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm positively giddy today. I don't even know how I'm going to do this review, but we're going to get it done. Uh, somehow, someway, I got into the critic screening of Killers of the Flower Moon last Thursday in New York City, and now we have an exclusive review. Cody, this is the way a true film critic operates. You and I know this. You're supposed to see the movie at a critic screening, and then the movie opens Friday, and you write your review back the day, uh, maybe Miami Herald. You'd have like a movie review Friday morning, blah, blah, blah. The way we could do it, because I'm not like a real critic, the movie opens Friday. I see it Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We tape it Monday, release it Tuesday. But this time, I actually feel like a critic. So this is interesting for me, first and foremost. Because I, I've written my review as if I was a critic. And I keep thinking to myself, I want everyone to listen to this podcast. Cody's going to work some magic, get this in the main feed. But I don't want to ruin it for anybody. So I've, I've written my review, which we're going to do in a second. And I followed the Tiber model. First third, you can discuss the plot. Second third, eh. Last third, you can't tell anything. So at any point, if you feel like I'm saying too much, throw in a spoiler alert. Now, before we get into the review, I need Please. you to paint the picture. Because yes, you were super, super eager to get in get some access here how did you get the news was there a fist bump did you, i have you yelping Woo! Woo! like what was the literal reaction to finding out you're going to attend a screener yeah i, I i'm with you on the yelping <laughs> there's definitely Woo! some 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 <laughs> like definitely some high-pitched screeching uh definitely yelping you hug involved. harold reynolds because you're like recording <laughs> you're, you happen to be doing baseball stuff so you're like harold i got in and he's like i don't care Right. He has no idea. Could yeah. not care less. He's like, shoot. Have you seen this uh, Nathan Evaldi tape? I'm like, yeah, whatever yeah. you say, buddy. I love Nathan Evaldi. Is, <laughs> is he uh, has a role in this movie? So I find out I'm in and I think I'd emailed them last Friday and then Tuesday late night. They're like, here's the screenings. And it was like a Monday night. And I was like, no, I have to work. I'm like, would I call in sick? I'm like, no, I, I couldn't in good conscience. It's playoffs right now. I've never called in sick under false pretenses. Not in America. I did once in Canada, which was <laughs> when I first had my ESPN audition. I was, it was literally, um, we were doing <laughs> like rehearsals for a new show. And I'd asked them, it was Canadian Thanksgiving, which just passed. And I said, can I just have the Monday off? And they're like, no. And I go, okay. It's the only time I've ever called in sick under false pretenses because ESPN had given me just like an informal meeting. And so I was like, oh, and somebody told me, like, if you ever want to call in sick under false pretenses, say you threw your back out. So I threw my back out, hmm. drove nine hours to Bristol, met Laurie Orlando, and That's now Dave one. Roberts, who now down. runs. That's yeah, yeah. throw your back out. If ever you want to get Dan, they'll have no idea. And then I drove back. Anyways, this time I was like, no, I can't call in sick. I could never do that to MLB Network. Um, let's work at another time. So Thursday, they go 10 a.m. or 5 p.m. They go, oh my God, okay. I think I can do the five pound. Get the I was like, I thought at 10 a.m. I go get the kids to school, but as you know, no car right now. I had to check the bus schedule. So this is where the situation got very delicate. 5 p.m. movie, which is in Broadway, Times Square. 1550 in Broadway to be specific, Paramount screening room. Four boys, as you know. Eldest guy's got cross country till five. My other son, 415. So my little guy gets him on the bus, 305. I got to pick up my other boy, Shaz, 305. So I, I tell my wife, I'm like, all right, you stay home. You got Maz on the bus. I'll pick up Shaz. Pick him up, 304. Come home, five minutes, 309. Give him a hug and a kiss. I'm like, I got to go. He's like, what? I got I'm going to see a movie. <laughs> the, the walk to the bus stop is 12 minutes. So if I leave at 310, I'm not going to make it on the bus. The bus was at 317, which I had okay. 319, excuse me, 319. Literally minutes here. And you know what it's like? You're hugging your daughter. You don't want to yeah. say goodbye. She's like, good dad, I don't understand. I'm like, can I tell you about my day? I'm like, we had five minutes. We're going to have a lot more time tomorrow. I got to run. I love you, buddy. <laughs> so I'm I'm wearing my Martin Scorsese Marvel sweatshirt, perspiring a little bit, getting the jog on, slightly strained hamstring from tennis. So wow. we're not really running all the way. So we're like, oh, this could be a little embarrassing if someone sees you right now. Fighting like, through. Yeah. Is that, is that a lame leg dad named Burke getting to a bus stop? But I got there 317. 
bus at 319. Girl sitting there also like, oh, you made it. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, just don't tell anybody how much I'm perspiring. Bus comes 321. So two minutes late, made it with four minutes to spare. Thought then hit while I'm on the bus. Like, imagine if there's an accident. Like, imagine Lincoln Tunnel shut down. Like, I'm, like imagine I'm on a bus as this happens. Thankfully, crisis averted. 43-minute bus ride. Most important thing is what? Use the bathroom. Yeah. Empty your bladder at Port Authority. Take care of business. 430. Check the phone. 10-minute walk. Bam. 440. Walk up. Security guard. Love your sweatshirt. Thank you. I go see one of the guys who was on the thread. Jeremy's like, you made it. I'm like, buddy, you understand. I might hug you. I, I don't even know you. Thank you so much for the screening. Before I walk in, I go, can I use your bathroom? He's like, yeah. I had just gone to the bathroom. I'm like, three and a half hour movie. I'm like, I go back to the bathroom. This is 445. I go in. I'm like, this is like... And then I'm like, I'm about to like, like heart's just pounding. I'm like, this is like such an incredible experience. Four years I've been waiting for a Scorsese movie. And he's 80 years old. Like, how many more of these am I going to get, Cody? Like, this right. this, this is it. You have to bottle this emotion right I now. I thought you had to use the restroom, and that's why you were having these things. It's, no, you're just excited for the movie. Okay. <laughs> you love this aspect, though. It's now 4.55, and I go, maybe one more bathroom break, just in oh, case. God. And even the guy's kind of like, I'm like, he looks at me and I'm like, I just need one more. He's like, okay. I'm like three and a half. I don't want to have any sort of urine in my bladder. I want to just be completely focused. He's like, yep. couple dribbles later, we go back. Guy sits down. <laughs> kind of gives me a look. Yeah. Guy looks at me and goes, I did. I'm like, yeah, how you doing? Man? He's like, good, good. He's like, oh, I'm a huge fan. I'm like, thanks. Eric from Bro Bible. I don't know if you would probably do this like me. He goes, Eric, like, give us a, like, a, you know what it is kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, no idea. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> profile. This doesn't sound like something I'd follow. I'm like, nee, nee, nee. I read all your stuff. And he's like, are you here for work? And I'm like, yeah, I, I do a podcast called Cinephiles. He's like, no, I know. I'm like, but if you know who I was, yeah. wouldn't you know that I do Cinephile? Like, maybe it was a little bit confusing, but I'm like, yeah, I, I'm reviewing the movie. He's like, yeah. So we chat a few minutes. He's from Hoboken. Nice guy. I'm like, all right, let's do this. And I, I, I love the fact he has a notebook. How did he get in? Good, great question. <laughs> yeah. And I look at my guy, I love that I give a notebook. I'm looking around, I go, most critics and I feel like we just watch it. And you know, you remember it, whatever your kids go, because he made a funny joke. He's like, no, I had a brand new notebook. Are you kidding? Three and a half hours. I need, I need all these pages. I'm like, yeah. So it was funny. The only thing it never took me out of the movie. The dark theater, it's like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I've, I've done it before. <laughs> trust me. I nerded out when I was your age, like 35, 36. I'm, like, I'm going to be a real film critic. I'm going to take a notebook. And I'm like, dark, you don't even know what you're writing. You're just yeah. scribbling nonsense. You can't, like, after like, oh man, I looked really important, but I don't know what the hell I wrote. So a few times I would notice, like I would laugh at something. I'm like, oh, he's scribbling that one down. I'm like, oh, interesting when I get this joke. Anyways, movie begins. I go, I wish, I wish I could bottle this emotion. Like, granted, I don't do drugs, but I'm like, this must be like, if you're a real drug addict, this must be like what heroin's like. Like, this is like, like once, once phone goes off, dim the lights. Oh. Paramount Pictures. Is I'm it like, goosebumps when the lights go down? Absolutely, goosebumps. And I'm like, <laughs> and all I'm telling myself is never forget this feeling. Like this is, this is it. Like this is, this is what it's like. Lights fade off. Paramount Pictures. And away we go. I'm now going to read my review because I, okay. I, uh, I'm i just too emotional. This is where I'll lay out. Go ahead. Yeah, ex thanks. Go ahead. <laughs> Come make some notes while I go ahead. Make notes while that guy was. I'll turn back. all the lights off in here and take notes on your review. <laughs> here we go. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon opens the ritual of the Osage. So many of Scorsese's movies are ritualistic. Think of Charlie putting his hand above the flame in Mean Streets. Travis Meyer in Loneliness driving his cab and frequenting adult movie theaters. Jake LaMotta in a repeated cycle of training and eating and battering everything in its way. And in the rituals in his religious films like Jesus in Last Temptation of Christ, The Monks of Kundun, and The Priests of Silence. Here, a shot Marty loves employing and also used in silence, an eyeball peeking through, observing what's happening, like Ray Liotta's childhood character in Goodfellas, observing the wise guys of the street. The ritual ends and the members of the Osage go outside only to see a geyser erupt and the music from longtime Scorsese collaborator, the late Robbie Robertson, swells. Eureka! They've struck gold. 
Then the story begins. An old school newsreel, as if Marty's paying homage to titles from a Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton movie. The Osage became the richest people in America per capita, thanks to the ocean of oil underneath their feet. To quote Daniel Plainview and P.T. Anderson's masterpiece, There Will Be Blood. That title is apropos here as well, because all these rich Osage will not be able to enjoy their riches forever. So how exactly will it be plundered from them? Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernest arrives by train. Scorsese grew up a devotee of Westerns. John Ford's The Searchers, for example, directly informs the ending of Taxi Driver and Let's Go Home, Jenny. You can feel his enthusiasm watching the opening of the picture and those great, wide, expansive shots as the director seems as wide-eyed at the potential of his first Western as Ernest is at seeing the potential exploration of this newfound territory. He goes to meet his uncle, who he calls King, played by the indomitable Robert De Niro. This marks DiCaprio's sixth collaboration with Scorsese and Bob's 10th collaboration with Marty and second back-to-back after an extended absence. Marty's longtime editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, who's cut all of Scorsese's films since 1980's Raging Bull, has called this De Niro's finest performance, and perhaps Bob is due for a late-career Oscar. As King, the actor finds a different approach yet again. Silver hair swept back and period piece circular glasses that give him an avuncular look. This uncle is truly avuncular, as he asks Ernest, what kind of women you lack? White ones? What about red ones? The Osage have a lot of money with them. And Ernest makes it clear with his sideways grin and grimy visage. Hell, I do love that money. Soon he's driving Molly Burkhart, played by Lily Gladstone, who's nothing short of a revelation. Their relationship forms the crux of the movie. In a moment which was ad-libbed, she mutters something in Osage. And without missing a beat, Leo responds, that must mean handsome and engine. Staying in character, she laughs and they continue on the ride. Later at her home, when she tells him to stay quiet during a rainstorm, she makes it plain to him. She knows he wants to be with her for her money. And he doesn't bat an eye, saying he sure does love that money. Later, she's with her sister, and she also tells him bluntly, Ernest is money hungry. And Lily doesn't dissuade the notion and says he sure is handsome. Later, Ernest seeks the advice of King if he should marry Lily. And once Uncle gives his blessing, the plan has been hatched. In Scorsese's world, there isn't one mastermind complicit, but an entire community. And after showcasing the love and rituals of the Osage, as they start to be murdered, our emotional investment rises considerably. Who isn't responsible? Is King a man of benevolence, a crafty benevolent, or incarnation of evil? Is Ernest a lover, not a fighter, and too ignorant to understand what's happening? Or is he that worst kind of person, a wolf in sheep's clothing. David Ehrlich, the critic of IndieWire, has called this the best performance of Leonardo DiCaprio's career. It's easy to see why. As you can see, all of DiCaprio is tortured as ever. And there's the ever-expressive Gladstone, who Spike Lee says should win an Academy Award, suffering through diabetes and seeing the slow, painful dissolution of her society. The capable supporting cast features two longtime actors working with Scorsese for the first time. Academy Award winner Brendan Fraser for The Whale and John Lithgow playing opposing lawyers. And there's also Sally Bugs from The Irishman showing up in a memorable cameo. Scorsese's directorial style is less busy and frenetic than the days of Michael Ballhouse ever-present roaming camera in Goodfellas. Here, rather than elaborate tracking shots, Marty is content to have extended takes of over-the-shoulder shots, which means when he wants to ante up the dazzle with a Dante's Inferno sequence, as David Grant mentioned, or breaking of the fourth wall, or an extraordinary bit of acting from DiCaprio, which exists of an uninterrupted medium shot, the effect is overwhelming. The aforementioned score, drum beats with dread. Jack Fisk nails the period production detail. Rodrigo Prieto's peerless cinematography. And Ellen Lewis's casting gives a face to so many Osage actors who haven't been seen before. Scorsese and co-screenwriter Eric Ross spent two years completely rewriting the script when Leo expressed interest in playing Ernest rather than the straight-arrow FBI agent played by Jesse Plemons. 
As Marty said, he was worried about telling yet another white savior tale. Instead, with the cooperation and investment of the Osage community, it's a story of withering betrayal and cataclysmic sadness. Killers of the Flower Moon is an everlasting elegy and another Marty masterpiece from the world's greatest living director. A month shy of turning 81, he proves he's capable of giving us nothing short of the best picture of the year and a timeless tale that will result in double-digit Oscar nominations. There's moments of triumph and humor, but ultimately, this is a bleak American tragedy, shattering in its depiction of evil and the corrosive nature of the human heart. Goosebumps. <laughs> Give me something negative. Tell me one <laughs> negative sentence about it. But yeah, the question really is, is like, what would have it had to take for me to not call seriously? It the best that's what I want to know. <laughs> but seriously, you have nothing. Like, is there anything, any critiques? I tell you, man, I, I, as soon as it's over, it's, it's, and it's three and a hook. Like it's three and a half hours on the dot. I turn my phone on. I see like 12 messages. And it's like, how about that Trey Turner hit? I'm like, no, I don't care right now. I, I That's really not my focus. And I kind of had to catch my breath. I kind of want to talk to Buddy there from the Bro Bible. He he dipped right away. He gets up. Like, oh, I guess I kind of want to have a conversation with him. But but it's such you a You just want to be like, hey, can we just go and talk about this? Like me and you? Can we just- <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're taking the train? I got to take the bus back home. Trust me. I had a $21 bus ride. I'll walk with you. But as I went, thankfully, to the bathroom right away, I, I looked at the guy next. Thankfully, not the urinal. And I was just like, man, that's... That's heavy. He's like, yeah. And then we, we discussed a couple of scenes. I'm like, that's, uh, I just feel so grateful. I get to see it. He's like, yeah, I feel the same way. And then I walk out and you go back into society. Many would argue the worst of society, which is Times Square and everyone hustling and bustling. I'm like, I, I, I can't do this right now. I don't, I don't want to go to a bus. I don't want to be surrounded by people dressed as Iron Man. I'm going to go to a sports bar. I'm, I first got a veggie cheese slice. It was like $6.33. Like, let me just, you know, let me throw all these text messages, think about the movie. Watched a bit of the Phillies game, took the bus home, but I was just like, oh my God, man, I uh, I can't wait to see it again. Like, you know, when you see a great film, I was like, okay, that's one down. Now I can't wait to see it again. And, and like, because you're watching it the first time, you're just watching the story unfold. What's going to happen? Now when I watch it the second time, I'll watch it from a critical eye looking for certain scenes. But I, I can't wait to people to see it. And uh, are you still going to bring your wife? Also, excellent question. So I, I went back and I said to her this week, I'm like, hey, um, Thursday night, I was trying to reschedule the kids swimming. She has her cousin coming Friday into town for a couple of days. So I'm like, did you still want me to get the sitter? And she's like, no, I'll just cancel the sitter. I'm like, are you sure? She's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. I'm like, don't ask me twice. Cause I'm like that guy. So now what I'm going to do is basically she's saying, you know, she's prioritizing the fact her cousin's coming, which is totally fine. She wants to get the house ready. But now I'm like Friday, once I get the kids to school, I'm going to go see a 9 a.m. screening, <laughs> knock that out for three and a half hours. And then uh, shoot, I'll be on the road at the World Series. Could be Rangers, Phillies. I'm like, man, if I got to, nah, I don't know, I wouldn't have a day off to be traveling. But my show is me and Harold are in the pregame. So if I got a 10 a.m. Oh. showing in Philadelphia, <laughs> I'd be cracking up and killing the fire moon screen. <laughs> what How is this Bryce Harper? Yeah. What's the most you've ever seen one movie in a theater? It'd be The Irishman, which I saw three times in the theater. So that okay. was New York Film Critics screening, which was, you know, Scorsese, De Niro, Pacino, Pesci. And then I took my wife the next year. Maybe it was the day after. And then my one of my buddy's close friends from Kingston was visiting like a month later. He's like, oh, I haven't seen The Irishman. I go, let's go do it. So three is the most I've ever done. And you'll do this one three, we think. Yeah, I think so. It's got to be. I mean, it's, it's, it's minimum two. It's just it just wouldn't be me if it wasn't three. Well, so you do good. it. One is the better question. Will I want to see it. I mean, I missed. Yeah. I wanted to review it on here, but you got it ahead of time. But I do. Yeah. I am going to go see it. All right. Um, we have as well a couple of members of the team, which is fantastic. So again, I I can't thank Mason and Jeremy and the rest of the crew here from 42 West. These guys were awesome because, I mean, they did see when I walked into the sweatshirt that I go, listen, I'm locked in. So afterwards, I said, it's the best movie of the year. What can we do here? 
Um, I'm willing to give up a kidney for five minutes of Marty. They could be not going to get to Scorsese, unfortunately. Did Time Magazine. It's not going to do Cinephile. But I did get the invite to the webinar. So 30 minutes of Marty talking to all of us on the global stage. And they were kind of sent along some uh, clips of that. So take a listen. Here's Martin Scorsese talking about Killers of the Flower Moon. Welcome to the global press conference for Killers of the Flower Moon. And we are extraordinarily lucky and honored to have with us here today a man who really does not need presentation, as he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, who has co-written, directed, and produced what, in my opinion, is a masterpiece. Uh, personally, it blew me away. I was not that familiar with the story, and now I can't stop thinking about it and the movie. Congratulations once more. Thank you so much. <laughs> First question is... Um, you formed a 20-year partnership with Leo DiCaprio and a 50-year partnership with Robert De Niro. Why have you returned to them both so often over the years? And what has stood out to you most about their work on Killers of the Flower Moon? Well, uh, in the case of uh, Robert De Niro, we were we were teenagers together, and uh, he's the only one who really knows where I come from, and people I knew, and that sort of thing. Some of them are still alive. He knows them. Uh, I know his friends, his old friends. And we had a real testing ground in the 70s where uh, we tried everything and we found that, you know, we trusted each other. It was all about trust and love. It's what it is. Um, and that's a big deal because very often if an actor has a lot of power and he had a lot of power at that time, an actor could take over your picture. Studio gets angry with you. The actor comes in and takes it over. With him, I never felt that. I never felt that. There was a freedom. Uh, there was uh, experimenting and also not afraid of anything. He wasn't afraid to do something. I just did it. And years later, he, he told me he worked with this kid, Leo DiCaprio, and um, little boy in, in this boy's life. And he said, you should work with this kid sometime. But he didn't. It was just casual. But with him, a line, something like that, a recommendation at that time, I think in the early 90s, um, is not casual. He says it casually, but... He rarely said that, you know, rarely tell me, he rarely gave recommendations. And so years go by and I'm presented with Leo with gangs in New York and we worked together in gangs. He made gangs possible, actually. He loved the pictures I made um, and he wanted to explore the same territory. And so we developed more of a relationship when we did The Aviator. And there was a kind of, towards the end of it, there was a kind of something happening, a maturity with him. I'm not quite sure, but we really clicked in certain scenes and that led to uh departed and uh and then that became much closer you know that was a, a project where bill monahan him me uh, other people we were writing all the time and recreating that character that he played of billy um and so during that time he really found out that even though it's 30 years difference he has similar sensibilities he likes pretty much you know he'll come to me and he'll say listen to this record it's louis jordan and Ella Fitzgerald. I grew up with it. He's not bringing me anything new, but he likes it. Said, That's interesting. Why is he bringing? He'll call me and say, you know, I had a call. I had a cold, and I I, I was looking at Criterion films, and you know, uh, I wanted to catch up on some of these classics. And I saw this incredible movie. It's incredible. It's a Japanese picture. It's called Tokyo Story. Did you ever see it? I said, this was last year. I said, yeah. I mean, it took me a few years to catch up. To I couldn't even understand the Ozu, Ozu style, seeing it for the first time in the early 70s, because we're used to Orson Welles, cameras, you know. Um, and I, this guy got it from watching it on a big screen and TV. Uh, 
and that's very interesting to me to be open that way to older parts of our culture, newer parts of our culture, of course, and the curiosity that he has about other people and other cultures. And there's a trust. There's a trust. And even if we can't get it right away, we know we'll come up with something. You know, uh, maybe other people have relationships where they come up with it faster. Well, we don't. We just work it through. For example, the scene between Leo and Bob in the jail at the end. That scene ultimately was finally written, I think, a few days before we shot it. Uh, working with the two of them and working with Marianne and everybody because we had said so much and it could have gone so many different ways. But what does the picture really need? How much more is there for them to say to each other after all that's happened? You know, and um, uh, so we went that way. Um, it's really, you know, it's trust, particularly doing Wolf of Wall Street, by the way. Uh, he came up with wonderful stuff that was outrageous. And uh, so I pushed him, he pushed me, then I pushed him more than he pushed me. And we and suddenly, <laughs> everything was wild. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and it's really quite something. But, um, and he had a good energy too on the set. That was also important, very important, because in the mornings, I'm not really good. And I get on set and then I'd see him and or Jonah Hill or him and Margot Roby or or him and Lily. And suddenly they're all like, hey, I said, OK, let's work. <laughs> mentioned uh, music a moment ago. Your films have a musicality through your framing, camera movements, sound, silences, where you choose to cut shots. What informed the rhythm of your work and what music were you hearing in the making and execution of this film? Well, yeah, the way I like to make pictures, for the most part, I've learned, I've learned, or, or not intentionally, but I feel it, uh, is like the pacing of, of music. Um, the boxing scenes in Raging Bull are like the ballet scene in The Red Shoes, where everything is seen and felt from inside the ring, inside the fighter's head, the way everything is felt and seen inside the dancer's head, Mara Scherer's in Red Shoes. So uh, the covering of um, the band singing The Weight in The Last Waltz, doing in a studio, was very much according to the uh, music, um, to the different bars of music and how a camera would move, etc. So, and sometimes I play the music back on the set, in the case of Goodfellas, number of times uh the end of layla for example was played back as we were doing the camera moves um and, and so for me ultimately um a movie is more like i'm trying to get to like a movie being a piece of music is what i think i've been trying why i do think these music films at the same time I'm, I'm trying to get to the pacing and rhythm of um something that can be played you know uh for example I don't know, you play a symphony and you live with it. How many times you say, oh, I heard the Beethoven symphony. I don't want to hear it again. No, you play it. Well, I like the third movement. I want to hear the second movement again. No, I mean, you live with it. You live with it. Um, or uh, Baroque music, anything by Bach. So, you know, uh, or Philip Glass, let's say. And so uh, in a case like this, very often I leave, um, if the film is playing on TCM, let's say, I take the sound off and I just watch. It's living with me. I live with it. And if it's a Hitchcock or it's a Ford or, you know, a newer one, whatever, I'm looking and there, I can tell there's a musical rhythm to the pacing of the camera, the edit, 
What I mean by the camera is the size of the people in the frame, the editing, and camera movement. You know, uh, I could feel it. And so that's the way I, that's how I exist in a sense. So for me, it's really, uh, really about getting the pace of music. Uh, and that's done very, very carefully on set, but also even more carefully in the editing. That's why this picture is more like somebody pointed out recently, like a bolero, where it starts slower and moves slowly and in circles and in circles, and then suddenly gets more intense and more intense and suddenly goes more and more until it explodes that way. And so um, I felt it. I didn't know, I couldn't verbalize the way I am now, but I felt it in the shoot and in the edit. Um, and a lot of the music that kept pushing me was what Robbie Robertson had put together, particularly that uh, bass note that he was playing uh, when, uh, um, when Ernest drops her off for the first time at her house, Molly's house. She looks at him, she turns, and all of a sudden you hear boom, 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 boom. I said I wanted something dangerous and fleshy and sexy, but dangerous. And that beat took us all the way through, all the way through. Then I added, like, he he sent me some uh, hymn, and I could pick up music from uh, Harry Smith's anthology of folk music, all this sort of thing. One particular piece called The Indian War Whoop by Hoyt Ming and his Pep Steppers was very, very important. Uh, Bulldoze Blues by uh, Henry Thomas, which became Going Up the Country by Can Heat. All of this, again, uh, you know, uh, Dark dark as the Night, and Blind Willie Johnson uh, with the Flames. Um, uh, oh, C.C. Uh, Ryder, uh, Ma Rainey. Uh, and of course, uh, Emmett, um, Emmett Miller singing Lovesick Blues, which became the great Lovesick Blues by Hank Williams later on but this was the first so it's in all that's in there but the drive of the movie is what Robbie put down and we pulled it through that way when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right. Now, as promised, 
a couple of big time guests. We have Jack Fisk, who is the production designer of Killers of the Flower Moon. He's had an amazing career, which I'm going to dive into with him, particularly his work on this film, and also casting director Ellen Lewis. How cool is that? A casting director. How do you cast these kinds of movies? And by the way, she's also cast Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street, and The Irishman. So she's worked with Marty for years. I cannot wait for both of these interviews. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. As promised, Killers of the Flower Moon is the best picture of the year. And what a tribute not only to Martin Scorsese and all his collaborators, one of whom a pleasure to talk to now on Cinephile. His name is Jack Fisk. He is the legendary production designer who worked on this film. Jack, it's so great to see you. Congratulations on such an achievement. Thank you. It was, it was nothing but fun to do. It was a challenge. So first thing I know, I'm, I'm, I think it's really instructive for our listeners to go, okay, production designer. I get the basic essence. They're obviously putting together the look of the movie and grabbing all the materials, but you just start with a mood board? Like, what's on the mood board? Let's start there. Well, I don't really start with mood boards. I start with character. Um, and in this uh, film, the character I was concerned about most was Molly. So I needed to figure out where she lived. And no, none of us knew exactly. Uh, the history books didn't have pictures of her house, and not that much was written by her, about her until uh, David Grand wrote his beautiful book. So... My first research when I came on the film was to find out how Molly and her family were living in 1920, 1919, and then to figure out how the town was set up and what the main uh, income to the town was and, and what kind of people and shops were there. So that research uh, compiled for, literally for months because of COVID. I had extra time to do the research. And based on that research, I started to design design uh design the film you know design her house based on other osage homes uh at the time and the colors uh you know that what you normally put in the mood board uh, i was investigating real locations and finding out uh, what color was this originally you know i was looking behind light switches and under moldings and uh peeling wallpaper back and seeing what was under that uh, so it became it was purely investigative because I figured if I knew way it really was, then we could alter it if it made the story better. But at least we had a starting point. And from there, you end up building this this entire area. So did you guys literally build the sets? Was it on Osage land? Is it in Oklahoma? Did you have permission? I know you worked with the community. How did that develop? We worked with the Osage community. Some of the uh, land that we built on Molly's house and stuff was uh privately owned by uh you know a family uh in osage county but we built some things on osage land we were uh given uh or allowed to shoot in about 40 buildings in pahuska which became the main street of our town representing fairfax and those those buildings in that block were pretty bad shape you know, they they no, they were vacant, which was great because we could take them over. The ones that were most solid, we ended up making uh, sets with inside them. Uh, we filled in the gaps where buildings had fallen down or burned or, you know, been destroyed uh, by building buildings that reflected the research we had on Fairfax. So we brought as much of Fairfax into Pahaska into those two blocks as we could. Um, one one building that was uh, was in pretty good shape was an 
old appliance store and that became our pool hall but it had a drop ceiling and we ripped that out it had paneling on the wall we took that out and we uh had the idea to put a barber shop in the uh, pool hall so we you know tiled parts of the floor and uh we opened up when we took the ceiling out this you know went up at 14 feet and there were these clear story windows above the picture windows so it let in so much light and it was like when you were in there you were at a imax theater watching the road and it was great for us because <laughs> we put so much energy into making the, the road right you know every building and the dirt and the cars and stuff and you from that set you could it it became a part of the set so the set it just expanded to the other side of the road and it gave you an idea that uh these people hanging out in the pool hall were just kind of watching like in a goldfish bowl they were watching this town go by and they would see somebody walking they know how much money he had or what you know how much time he had to live or how you know his sister or who she was or you know they they were right there um scheming the whole time and the pool hall was a perfect place to do it so that became a, a featured set and it's amazing too. like imagine when you're getting these artifacts for example let's suppose you get a lamp you say okay it has to be period specific 1920s but you mentioned everything begins with character so do you have to look at a lamp and go okay is that the kind of lamp that ernest burkhart and molly would have like how specific are you in those details uh we are uh specific you know because you, you only have so many chances to tell the viewing audience about the character so if you are able to find a lamp that molly would have liked just by seeing that lamp you know more about molly and if you don't put too many things in the set you'll see more stuff you know like you as you walk through a room you might see three or four things you won't see 20 things you, your mind can't adjust that plus watch the movie so i try to uh keep the dressing down and uh i put importance in uh, you know in adam willis who was a set decorator and i worked closely together this is our second film together you know we chose stuff that primarily told that work for the character and then work for the settings to make them you know uh you know more interesting it's fun it's fun uh thinking about character and and the same thing about color you know lately with the after covid when the newscasters you start seeing them in their homes talking okay. And you start seeing the books they were reading. You start seeing the lamps, the pictures. <laughs> you learn more about them, and they—it uh, was much more. It was much more interesting to me. I mean, I love studying character. Well, so. I can tell, like you're somebody who has just such focus on detail. I look at your your career is incredible. I mean, the fact you're nominated for the Academy Award Best Production Design for two films I adore, particularly P.T. Anderson's There Will Be Blood and The Revenant. So you clearly, Jack have an affinity or an expertise in period pieces and dealing with this kind of really intense subject matter. I mean, part of why I love Killers of the Flower Moon is I could see the, the parallels, but there will be blood and it's about capitalism and greed and all of that. And, and of course, The Revenant's a wonderful movie as well. So maybe speak to your ability to, to kind of focus on Westerns and be able to, to really kind of nail those period pieces. Yeah, and I love working outside. You know, uh, 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 you know, some designers, their whole career is on a soundstage, you know, and they, and they create stuff on there but i got started early on days of heaven building that house for terry out in the plains of alberta canada and uh and i just loved it i love being outside i love dealing with the weather i like being able to shoot the set from 360 degrees 
so you can always like put the sun where you like it, uh, that you can go in and out and you're, you're in the real world. And I think it's, you know, helpful for actors. Uh, the more real you can make something, it's, it helps them with their character and it's helpful for the directors. And then I work with the cinematographers trying to put bigger windows in and, and orientating the set. So we get, you know, a beautiful backlight, um, and that we have some depth in the vistas, you know, that we don't, we're not always having to put up blue screen or paint in the backgrounds that they're really those wonderful backgrounds. And that's what we found in Oklahoma. It's one of the, you know, it's a great American prairie and it's just not seen enough in films. Uh, in Oklahoma is uh, in Pahuska is the tall grass prairie, which is beautiful. And they've reestablished Buffalo on that. And you will go out there and you don't know what year it is. You know, it could be, you know, it could be 1800s. It could be 1900s. It could be, you know, today, but it's timeless. And, and always in films, I like to not pinpoint a year so much, but to have it timeless. And it has to do with the place and the year that, you might recognize this town as Fairfax, but it might be any town in the United States, you know, at the time. Um, and it could be 19, you know, 20, but it could be 1915 or it could be 1910. You know, the only thing that gives it away are the automobiles. They they keep, they're like a clock. You know? <laughs> yeah. well, I try to mix them up and put some older ones in there that uh, you've worked with so many great directors, and I do want to ask about Terrence Malick. He designed all of his first eight movies. You've worked with David Lynch. I mentioned P.T. Anderson, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Henry too. But to work with Scorsese, I mean, I think he's America's greatest living director. What was that experience like? It was uh, it was really uh, one of the highlights of, of, of my experience in working on films. Uh, like I said, when I, I, I may have said, it, when I first met with... Um, Marty, it was over Zoom because of COVID was like raging across the country. And and then we started a, a communication through Zoom and letters, uh, emails and letters with photos. And and I would send him my ideas or research and stuff as we went. And, and he was so uh, passionate about the film, about telling those a story. And he was so he embraced uh, ideas if if if. If you presented them with uh, a factual reasoning or a logical reasoning, he, uh, you know, he accepted that. Uh, I remember when I first told him about um, Molly's house, I said it, it wasn't a mansion. It was a small house. And he thought for a second, he said, you mean I will never get to see her come down the staircase? And I know because Marty references films all the time, it was gone with the wind and... <laughs> That great red staircase, and, but it was sort of sweet, you know. He he let it go, and he, it was more important for him to get everything right. But uh, I think a lot of misconceptions about the Osage came from the press and you know um, urban legends and people retelling stories. But what we tried to do was shift it back to the way it most likely was in the 1920s, you know. Like you said, it's so collaborative because you're working with Rodrigo Prieto, the cinematographer, you're working with the set decorator, you're working with all these different pieces. And I imagine a little bit with the actors as well. So what kind of interactions did you have with the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro and the League Gladstone? Well, uh, you know, I worked with Leo on uh, Revenant. So 
when he first came to Oklahoma, you know, I think he may have been there before, but when he first came under my watch, uh, we, I took him around to the locations and sets and, and, uh, I, I just see, you know, actors like they, 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 they get information, they click it into the character, the characters being evolved in their, in their, in their brain. And, and, uh, they just, they lap up any kind of information. So, you know, you want to feed them, uh, you want to feed them research. You want to tell them more about locations, more about other people at that time. And I think that they relayed, uh, relied a lot on uh, Osage input too, you know, for customs. You notice it. I mean, Robert De Niro, I think, spoke fluent Osage by the end of the film. Yeah. And Leo was rattling off lines in Osage and, and, uh, uh, I think the 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 uh, the teacher that was teaching him all the language said that Lily uh, reminded of her grandmother the way she talked. <laughs> so it, it, you know the actors do so much on themselves, and I think they uh, they appreciate once they trust you, they know what your stuff you're putting into the set is real or is you know is thought about through their character. They just absorb it, and it becomes a part of a part of their performance. I, I mean, that's the ideal thing that I think we do in building a world is that we build a world that uh, reflects their character and tells us more about their character. How hands on are you? Like, if you see carpenters and they're like, you know, putting the table together, you know, not like that. You got to hammer the nail like this. Will you get right in there? <laughs> I do. I do get in there. I when I was in uh, Oklahoma, although this was a one of the bigger films I've worked on, I had a car full of battery operated tools and uh, I can't help it. I, I One day I went to, uh, they were putting up uh, the footings for uh, Hale's house and it was just going too slow. And so I got in there and just uh, worked with them and uh, it's exhilarating because I, I, I kind of approached building these worlds like sculpture and you you don't want to just sit back and watch. You want to become a part of it. It comes from the old days of of uh, um, let's put on a show with you know Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. You know you 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 want to get in there and 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 build something. The uh, I remember the first film I did with Terrence Malick, uh, uh, Badlands. Martin Sheen was picking up cable and carrying it to the next set, and you know lights. You know my favorite way to work is in everybody meets and they're making a film and there's no division of you can do this and you can do that. So I'm continually getting in trouble for, you know, crossing the line, <laughs> but I, <laughs> well, speaking I enjoy across, it so much that I, I don't care. No, I, I love it. Speaking I of work with Daniel Lupe on uh, the master and we yes. were going to shoot in Hawaii. And I remember on, as I was going to the plane, he called and he said, look, I've hired somebody in every department so you can do whatever you want. You know, they can't because that's when the unions get upset is if you're, you know, if you're doing something and putting someone out of work. But he said, I've, I've arranged it. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> all right. Time for last one again. Legendary career. Oh. All those movies with Tino. They just told me one more. I said, I could go for Jack another hour. Uh, Badlands, Days of Heaven, The Thin Red Line, The Tree of Life. But I do have to ask because you mentioned The Master and There Will Be Blood. I've just got to ask can you give me your best? Daniel Day-Lewis story, because I just I need something of him as Daniel Plainview, whatever you got, or P.T. Anderson, something on that set, because I just adore that movie. Just the John Houston accent, whatever you got. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, he 
important for him is the clothing, you know, finding the hat for plain view and all that stuff. And he asked us if we could build, he was, they had rented a little house for him. He said, can you build a room in the backyard with all the furnishings from the period? I mean, nothing that's, so he could go in that room and get lost in the period. Wow. Uh, and he said that uh, when he was working on gangs of New York, it was so alarming to him because he'd be shooting in the uh, back lot in Rome at Chinichita, and he would go outside and he'd be in Rome, you know, but he was, he wanted to be in New York in 1900, New York, and, and uh, it blew his mind. So he takes what I love to extreme. He wants to, he wants to get lost in that period. Yeah. And, and, you know, every little, every piece of clothing, every, you know, every notch on his belt, every, everything is like informs his character. And, and that's why he's so great. Yeah. And talking to you, I just keep thinking of the expression, the devil's in the details. And it's in those details that you get greatness and masterpieces that you've worked on, like There Will Be Blood and this latest one, Killers of the Flower Moon. Jack Fisk, production designer. Jack, I can't thank you enough. This is a real honor. I love talking to you. And uh, I'm glad you, you like the film. Well, we talked to Jack Fist, the production designer, now to bring in the casting director, Ellen Lewis of Killers of the Flower Moon. It's nothing short of the best picture of the year. And Ellen is somebody who is so critical to Martin Scorsese's success. If you look at her resume, Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, in addition to many other great films along the years, you can imagine the impact she has had on his movies. And what a pleasure bringing Ellen right now. Ellen, congrats. Great to see you. What a wonderful achievement. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you, Adnan. Thank you. So this film took a while, Ellen. Marty is writing the script with Eric Roth. And of course, Leo is going to play the FBI agent. They go, no, you know, we don't want to tell him the white savior tale. Let's reshape this. Leo right. calls David Grant, who I just had on the podcast. David goes, he goes, what do you think about Planet Ernest? Okay, sounds good. Let's reshape the entire thing. And all I kept thinking of is imagine Ellen Lewis going, all right, we're going to start shooting here. Let's start casting here. No, wait, actually, we're going to scrap this for two years and we've got COVID. So take me through it. When did you start casting the picture? I started casting, I, I started working on it in 2018. Um, I contacted Renee Haynes, who I had met on Godless, a Netflix limited series I had done that Scott Frank directed, and she had done the indigenous casting in that. So I knew I had already read David Grant's book, thought it was amazing. So I knew that I needed good support in that part of the casting. Um, Renee started getting me films uh, made by Indigenous filmmakers or starring Indigenous actors that I had never seen before. And we then, so that's as early as 2018, but in 2019, with already our production had developed a strong relationship with the Osage Nation, um, Renee, as well as our production, set up an open call, meaning that you put out flyers and then anybody who's interested can attend. And we did this prior to Thanksgiving 2019. We did three days in Pahaska, two days in Oklahoma City, and two days in Tulsa. There was a total of 2,500 indigenous actors or humans, actually, not necessarily actors, who came. And from that, Renee was walking 
the crowd and looking at faces and looking at people and anyone that she thought could be right for us. She sent to another room and they were given a small scene. And then I was in another room with my associate, Kate Sprance and her associate, Elise. And we read people and we read people all throughout those days. Um, it was very wonderful to be in the community. The turnout was so incredible and people were so enthusiastic and patient because it was a lot of people to consider and be seen. And from that, we, most of those faces you see up on the screen. And Lily Gladstone is such a revelation in the movie. I, I imagine, you know, Bob and Leo and, you know, principal actors, obviously they're going to be cast and, and Marty's taking care of that. But someone like Lily Gladstone, I believe you discovered her. How did you do it? I didn't discover. I mean, Lily's been acting. Renee, again, was giving me films to look at with different actresses. And she brought up Lily and I had seen a certain woman, the Kelly Reichert film. Hmm. And I knew that Marty was a big Kelly Reichard fan. And when I had seen the film and I watched it again and, you know, you don't want to feel too confident, but um, because we were right in the beginning of, of seeing people, but I felt confident enough that late 2019, Marty said, you know, Molly, we really have to. And I said, you know, I think we're going to be okay. And, um, and we were, and so obviously we went through a process with that. And then I, we zoom read with Marty, with Lily, and then we zoom read with Leo, with Lily. And um, yeah, there we have, I mean, a magnificent actress who adds, such depth and heart and soul and stillness and love to this very tragic story. Yeah, I've been telling people, I said, you know, you walk out of there and, and DiCaprio's arguably never been better. And I hope De Niro gets a late career Oscar because he's deserving. But Lily Gladstone feels like a revelation. Like she's just so expressive in the role. And she really is like the heart and soul of the movie. Like th those eyes and that pain, that anguish, it's uh, it's remarkable. And it goes to your point just about the authenticity. Like how many roles did you have to end up casting? In the film overall? You know, at a certain point, I stopped counting because I've done... <laughs> Um, as you said, I've done a lot of movies for Marty and a lot of them have a lot of roles. Uh, you know, the Irishman was a huge cast too, but I think that what's interesting about this, I think Renee Haynes, cause she did a count. She had, I think there are 42 indigenous roles in the film and Four, only 14 of the actors who are in the film had ever acted before. So, you know, we, we did, we, although that open call was vital and had that not happened before the pandemic, I mean, it, it, it's so fortuitous that that happened before the pandemic because we would not have been able to see the community in that way. And I always wonder, you know, I have friends who are actors and it's funny, they, they try to befriend the casting director. I could just imagine the amount of people you've seen, Ellen, please, I'll, you know, I'll do anything for Scorsese's, you know, my hero, whatever I can do. 
you know, what is it like when you're casting? Do you ever develop a, like a, I wouldn't say a soft spot for an actor, but go, you know what? I, I really think they're right for this. And then maybe the audition doesn't go well. Would you ever go to Marty and go, listen, give him or her another audition or go look at this work that they've done, bring them back another time? Or would you not get that involved? You know, I think that first of all, every film that I do, no matter who the director is, it's another world that you're creating. And obviously in this 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 world was very specific. We were given fantastic uh, historical film to look at. We had footage from the Rotary Club and we had home movies of the Osage. So what you're trying to do, obviously, is it, it's so vital who the actors are, who the faces are. Um, and, and we are the first people really on a film, maybe locations and some, but casting is so vital. Yeah. And, um, and you, I, I, I start just to try to see the world through his eyes and it's very difficult to be an actor. It, it, it's a career that is filled with rejection. Um, and you know, only one person is going to get the role. So I just try to make that audition process as kind of warm and welcoming as possible. Um, if I really believe in someone and I feel that they didn't do the right reading, I'll read them again. Hmm. And um, but Marty also, when we do read with people together, I, you know, he's very sensitive to the actor hmm. and uh you know, he really understands actors probably better than anybody. And it's just a joy to bring somebody to him. And of course, people are going to be nervous, but I've talked to them and I've explained to them what the process will be and how great he is. And, you know, I, I try to make it as comfortable as I can for the actors. I can tell you have like a nice instinct to you that you could tell if someone was hyperventilating. You go, it's okay. Take a deep breath. He's just another guy. He's just Marty. It's okay. And I'm <laughs> excited too. I let them know. It's like, I'm excited every time too. And a little <laughs> nervous. So, you know, I mean, you're more nervous, but you should just know I'm really excited and he's really excited to meet you. So how does he punctuate things when he's really excited about them? You know, we just know I, I, he just knows when it's right. He's extremely decisive. Um, I have gone through, you know, my process is to open the door very wide. And then I really narrow down the choices, which is how I was taught the casting process from Julia Taylor, from Marion Dougherty to Julia Taylor. That that is how we do our job. I try not to overwhelm the director. Um, and. And yet, it, it, obviously, it is about what is their vision. And overall, we've done pretty well over these many years. Yeah, I did more than pretty well. The batting average is high. Are you on set, Ellen, during the filming of the movie? Never. Yeah. I never go to the set. I don't like going to the set. I like for um, that doesn't mean that always sometimes when these casts are very large, I might have to see uh, Marty a little bit through production but generally I'll FaceTime or Zoom with him. Um, but for the most part, I feel that it's very important that casting be finished by the time 
he is shooting so that this is not something he needs to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. His cast is taken care of. And then he is very aware of the fact that I am paying attention through all of the shooting. I'm in constant touch with our AD department and our producer because dates can shift. And so I'm just really keeping up on things so that the cast is flowing smoothly. But I don't really like I don't like the set. So I really love what I do in my pre-production one on one time with the actors and then with the director. We're talking with Ellen Lewis, legendary casting director, Killers of the Flower Moon. You've all got to go see it. It's my favorite movie of the year so far. Ellen, how well do other casting directors know each other? Do you ever say to someone, you know, I'm trying to cast this and you go, you know what? I've got the perfect actor for you. Call this guy. You know, as I said, my first thought on reading Killers of the Flower Moon was to call Renee Haynes, who specializes in indigenous casting. This is what she has done throughout her career. And then she and I are collaborating. So many of my closest friends are casting directors. Uh, Jeannie McCarthy, Vicki Thomas, Ellen Chenoweth, Juliet Taylor, my mentor, still one of my dearest friends, Laura mm-hmm. Rosenthal. And I think one of the reasons is because I think that casting actually, I think people don't really understand what our job is. And I think many times people think, oh, I can think of actors. And so they think that kind of that's what the job is. <laughs> But we all obviously know that we do know what the job is and how challenging it can be. And so we're a very supportive community. I feel really proud to be part of the casting community. It really is an extraordinary community, as you said. The one question I always have is, how is there no Oscar for casting directors? It's such a vital process. Marty himself has said, you know this. He said 90% of movies is the casting. How can you not get an Oscar for casting? I'm not, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, to say that it's wrong is an understatement. Our craft is equally as important as every craft that gets nominated. Um, I understand, you know, the writer, the cinematographer, the editor. I, I just don't understand, you know, makeup, hair, costumes, sound. It's 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 a terrible oversight, I feel, and hopefully they will correct this at some point. I mean, we have so many different categories and there's so many worthy of recognition. It, it's honestly astonishing to me that a casting director can't also be mentioned. Um, I mean, yeah, all those crafts deserve deserve an Oscar, but absolutely casting deserves an Oscar. There's one actor I wanted to focus on just because I rewatched yeah. The Irishman for the fourth time. I saw it three times in theaters. I saw it at the New York Film Festival when Marty was there, De Niro, Pesci, Pacino. And then I watched it the next day. I took my wife and then I saw it again in theaters. And then I had to rewatch it a couple of weeks ago. And I said, the guy I've got to ask you about once you're able to kindly come through and give us a few minutes because I saw him in Close the Flower Moon. I said, oh my God, I love this guy. And it's the guy who plays Sally Bugs, Louis Canselmi. It's Louis. Yeah. How tell me about Louis. This guy's great. I know. You know, I had not been as familiar with Lewis's work prior to when he came in and auditioned for The Irishman. And the minute that he read, I remember that I had to rush out to an appointment. And I'm like, you are amazing. Um, I am so, so happy to meet you and to hear this reading and you know i know we will uh, be crossing paths again soon 
Um, and that I, I think that Lewis is a brilliant, brilliant actor. And I think to show how he goes from the Irishman fluidly into Killers of the Flower Moon and this period, I think he is chilling. He gives chilling performances, actually, in both films. I mean, they are... Um, He's the warmest guy in the world, so. <laughs> but uh, he does seem to play a, a kind of a renegade kind of fellow in both of the films. That whole scene in the Irish room where he's talking about the fish prior to Jimmy being executed is incredibly well done. <laughs> it is. And it's so funny and horrible as they're going to shoot Jimmy Hoffa that this is the conversation that's going on in the car and how funny it is. But, you know, I'm also so proud that Jesse Clemens as Tom White is in the film. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he is an actor. He is as pure an actor as I can imagine. I don't think he hits a false note. There's yeah. nothing that he does or says ever that I don't believe. Um, and so I'm so proud that also that Jesse is in the film, but I'm glad that you're bringing up Lewis because I thought about it last night at the LA premiere. It's just like, Lewis is so brilliant. He's so funny and horrifying and horrible. All of the same. <laughs> and that's, like his that's the perfect kind of actor for Marty, which is a very dangerous, but funny actor. Yeah, I was like, I, I, but now that that face is so unique and just his sensibility. And you're right. I was like, I could see him in any role. And I bet she's the fact you tell me such a warm guy is so funny to me. I'm like, I could totally see that. Um, I, I want to go back to Goodfellas, if I may, because the other day somebody had this terrible hair and someone goes, I look like Maury. And of course, you the reference, Maury's wigs never come off, which is actor Chuck Lowe. Chuck Lowe. Uh, of that entire cast, like, again, it's remarkable that there's De Niro and, and the now late Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci, et cetera. But like, Chuck, tell me about Chuck Lowe, because he's Chuck unforgettable Lowe. as Maury. Well, Chuck Lowe, I think, was Bob De Niro's landlord. I mean, Chuck Lowe, <laughs> you know, when you do movies that Joe Pesci or Robert De Niro or Al Pacino are in, they know a lot of people. Right. And um and so it's always kind of fascinating who they want you to meet and who those people are and what they do um, on both sides of the law. You never quite know where they're coming from. Did they train at the actor's studio? Very possibly. Were they the landlord in, uh, you know, down in Tribeca? Very possibly. So that's Chuck close. <laughs> You mentioned De Niro. Of course, you worked with him. Uh, Goodfellas, Casino, The Irishman. And now this one, I, I saw there was a great piece in CBS this morning in which uh, DiCaprio is discussing. He says, you know, Marty's got a real shorthand with Bob, right? He goes, he kind of just kind of looks at him, kind of crinkles his nose, kind of looks like, yeah. And then they ask Marty, what's your relationship with Leo? He goes, longhand. And he gives right. that great Marty laugh. And then Leo's like, oh, long conversations, long things, long things. Uh, give me a story first about De Niro. Does he also have that shorthand with you? Kind of gives you a look like, Ellen, I like this actor. I don't like him. Does he do the same thing? You know, what the way that I'm working for the most part is still very directly with Marty. Right. So I am, of course, what I, I mean, I think Bob's performance across, I mean, I think Bob obviously is one of the greatest living actors throughout the history of film. I think that Killers of the Flower Moon is one of his greatest performances ever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I'm, I'm really, my dialogue is with Marty. So, you know, I, I, I respect every single thing about Robert De Niro and I'm always happy to meet anyone that he wants me to meet. But I have to say that the long hand and the short hand comment really made me laugh too. Because you could totally see it, right? Like, like it's like when someone said, "Oh, uh, De Niro's who recommended DiCaprio to Marty." Like, what do you say? Marty goes, "Well, Bob doesn't talk much. He just he just said Leo's pretty good. You should work with him one day." That's it. No, I mean I have to say that um, I have a shorthand with Marty too. So it, it just you know it resonated. The statement resonated with me, and I just think that anyone who is able to work in any capacity with Martin Scorsese is truly blessed because he's, you know, he's so inspiring. He's so enthusiastic. So from casting Goodfellas to casting Killers of the Flower Moon, his enthusiasm about every project, it's as if we're doing this for the first time. Yeah. And um, which is how I approach my job is if I'm doing this for the first time, we might have some familiar faces. Of course, there are people that I know that Marty really responds to and 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 wants to work with. But then it's just thrilling to get to meet new people. And something else I want to say, because I'm just struck by it so much. You read a script. You know, I work on the movie in the beginning of the film, but there's no way that I can ever imagine what it is that he is going to create in the cinematic language that he alone speaks. And I find it overwhelming and moving every time. A couple more here, then I'll we'll let her go. Um, I always think just the cast, again, so-called minor characters. There's no minor characters, but Goodfellas, like that great sequence, you know, Jimmy, two times going to go get the papers. You know, who, how do you cast that guy? Who's the guy in Casino in The Vice? Like, I mean, there's there must be so many different roles these people are so critical to saying. Like, even even think about it, a guy in a vice, but when Joe Pesci's putting the, they go, Charlie T? Because of Charlie T, like, that actor's going to be critical. That's a memorable scene. Yeah, I actually have to say, and this could come more from my training when I worked for Juliet Taylor for eight and a half years, you know, she would be kind of more concentrated on the leads. I love casting the day players. I love casting the smallest roles. I think that this is what gives texture and depth to a movie are those faces, are the believability of those small roles, you know, I love in the beginning of Killers, the man who's selling the car, the yeah. man who's taking the photographs. I mean, I love casting those roles. And then, you know, the, the, it, what you have to be careful of are the faces. So you want to make sure that, you know, the faces have a kind of a different feeling and that people are going to be able to differentiate. But I love that you're bringing up. I mean, I do love, um, I was in Las Vegas for about three months casting casino and, you know, kind of word went out that we were there and people were just filing through Um, the man who throws up the chips when uh, Sharon Stone in the opening of the the mustache and the glasses. Yeah, man worked in a mall. I mean, and he those were his clothes and his glasses. I remember 
saying to wardrobe, I don't think you're going to have to do anything <laughs> with this guy. I think he's ready to go. <laughs> All right, one more for you. The guy I absolutely love, and I had him on this podcast. I was, I was with a friend of mine who's a terrific actor. We're watching, I go, you know, I love the scene in The Irishman with Pacino and Stephen Graham and De Niro, and Stephen Graham is late, and they, they get into it. I go, you know, the guy I love is that guy, Patrick Gallo. I go, that guy's fantastic. My buddy goes, right, I'm going to go to IMDb. I'm going to go and talk to information. You're going to have him on the podcast. And sure enough, I hit him up, hit him on. Ellen, he was so amazing because I said, I just want to like, you're with Pacino and De Niro and Stephen Graham and you're like, and I'm with you. Like, I find it fascinating. Who's the fourth guy? Like, how is he handling the role? And he was like, you don't understand. Like, I'm, I'm pinching myself and Bob and Al both couldn't be more gracious. We do take after take. Marty's so generous. Marty treats me the same way he treats them. I swear to God, if I have an idea, if I have a thought, let's go for it. If I have an ad lib, it's great. He goes, that's the kindest compliment I can make is that they really treat you as an equal, which is extraordinary to me. Right. No, I think that the collaboration is, you know, on everybody's part. And it does. It sounds like on the set, I know Marty talks to his actors, listens to his actors. And look, I think that there can be times where it can be intimidating. Um, I, you know, I've had this happen a couple of times on a film. Um and it is intimidating and an actor can freeze. But I think that Marty's the kind of guy. And I think if you're in a scene with Bob De Niro, he wants you to be comfortable. And, you know, all of those actors, Al's an actor's actor. Stephen Graham is a brilliant actor that we cast in Gangs of New York and yeah. obviously then cast in Boardwalk Empire and in The Irishman. So, you know, and, and he's just like the warmest, greatest guy who can play a pretty scary character. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I love that you pay attention to those small roles because that is what I really love doing. This was such a, this was such an education. Ellen Lewis, the outstanding casting director, Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street, The Irishman, many, many more. I just wanted to focus, obviously, on these uh, Scorsese movies and Killers of the Flower Moon, which is coming out. you got to go see it. It's amazing. Ellen, this was, uh, like I said, such an education, such a pleasure. And uh, I'll give a kidney just to do a read through in a Scorsese movie, whatever you need. I'm not. Look, I might want to try it at some point. So, you know, you never know. You could get that call. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best. Thanks so much, Ellen. Thanks. Bye. All right. Take care. All right. Killers of the Flower Moon. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you all go see the movie. I hope it's a roaring success for Apple and all those kind people. I'm so lucky I got to be able to watch the film. I'm lucky to have Cinephile. Lucky to have Chris Cody with me and the entire team here at Cinephile. Again, go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks once again to Jack Fisk, the production designer, and Ellen Lewis, the casting director. Killers of Flower Moon. Whew. I'll take a deep breath. I hope you all see it once. I'm going to go see it a second time, and I'll see you at the movies.